So when the uh, people of Israel uh, were led by God, and God used Moses to do this, and uh, leading them out of uh, Egypt, where they were enslaved for hundreds of years, and they were taking them to the promised land. Um, the journey through the promised land was one of grumbling and complaining, but also establishment of festivals. And these are the ways that you're going to remember me and the Ten Commandments and all of those different things. And when they got to the threshold of the promised land, um, they sent in 12 spies. The 12 spies came back. Ten were bad and two were good. Right. Remember that song? And uh, when they uh, came back and, and the people were wanting to follow the ten, not the two. And so God said, this whole generation is going to have to die out before we go into the promised land. And so all in all, they were in the wilderness for, what, 40 years, right? Um, and so uh, Moses even sinned toward the end. And that's a whole another sermon for another day. Uh, but because he sinned, God said, you're not going to be the one to lead the people into the promised land. And so he took him on a mountain. He allowed him to see the promised land, but he didn't actually get to enter it. And the guy that actually led them into the promised land was a guy named Joshua, right? And uh, so the book of Joshua is all about the people of Israel going into the promised land, and they were supposed to kick out or push out all of the people that were dwelling there at that time, right? This was the inheritance or the promised land that God was giving him. He was coming through in his covenant uh, relationship with Abraham and saying, this is the land that will be for your descendants. And so they went in, and uh, the book of Joshua tells us, about varied success. You know, some of them went in, pushed them out. Some of them went in and they made friends with the people that were there. Some of them went in and they were tricked by the people that were there. And so just a, a lot of different things took place. But what was supposed to happen was they were supposed to take this promised land. Well, after we get through the book of Joshua, where they're somewhat settling into their promised land, what would happen is that the people of Israel would turn their backs on God. They would not be following him the way that he wanted them to follow him. And with that, as we all know, when we sin, there are consequences, right? Um, I would say even today, there are consequences when we sin. And so when they sinned, there would be dire consequences. Enemies would be attacking them, all kinds of different things. And they would cry out to God. God would hear their prayers and then he would raise up this person called a judge. And that judge would be raised up to help rescue the people of Israel in whatever uh, way they were being oppressed and, and attacked and that kind of thing. And uh, then when that judge would die, the people of Israel would go right back to where they were, not following God again. Some of the most well-known judges are Samson. We've heard that name before, right? Um, Gideon. Uh, Deborah was the, the female judge. And so a lot of, quite frankly, it's one of my favorite books because there's a lot of great junior high boys stories in the book of Judges. I would highly recommend it, especially if you have kids. All right. And so we have the book of Judges. Uh, but when we come out of the Judges, um, probably the last judge or definitely the last judge that they had um, was this guy named Samuel. And uh, we read about him in the in first Samuel can read about his life and everything. Um, but Samuel was the last judge because uh, in the book of first Samuel, we find that he is to appoint a king over Israel. All right, he's a, to appoint a king over Israel. And we'll get back to why all of that took place uh, later in the message. Uh, but I wanted to look at um, these first couple of kings in particular that Samuel got to anoint as king over Israel. And uh, so he went, uh, God said, yes, give them what they want, appoint them a king. And so he went looking for, and by God's direction, of course, this guy that would be the first king over Israel. We know, of course, his name is what? Saul, right? Yeah. Um, Saul is the son of, there's a, this is a 201 question. You know what his dad's name was? Kish. Yep. And uh, he was from the tribe of, this is a 301 question. What's that? Benjamin. Yeah, he was the tribe of Benjamin. Now, which son of Jacob was Benjamin? This is a 401 question. 
He was the youngest, right? He was the 12th. And so when it comes to inheritance, especially in this culture, um, what, who gets the most of everything? Usually the firstborn, right? Not the lastborn. So this is a little bit unusual. So um, Samuel is there and he's actually uh, offering sacrifices. But uh, what God did was he used Saul really to go find Samuel. And so Saul was out looking for his uh, family's donkeys. Um, and uh, I don't know why that just sounds funny to me. It just sounds funny that he went off looking for what's your job today? Well, dad said I have to go find the donkeys. Right. And so his dad was uh, wealthy is what the Bible tells us. And so he went looking for his father's donkeys. And as he was going to look for his donkeys, he is with a servant. And he's like, listen, um, at some point, my dad's going to be more concerned about us than he is the donkeys. We probably ought to turn back. Well, his servant said, you know, I heard that there's a seer that lives in this town that we're getting close to. Why don't we go ask the seer, seer, prophet? Um, you can kind of fill in that language there. And he's like, OK, so they go into town and I'm making a long story short, but they go into town. They find out that this guy, Samuel, or that they go up to him and said, we're looking for the seer. And he said, I'm the seer. And the day before God had told him, there's this guy who you're going to come into contact tomorrow. He's looking for something that's going to be the guy. And so Samuel was ready for this to happen, didn't necessarily know the time of day, but he was ready for it to happen. And sure enough, Saul walks up looking for the donkeys. Are you the seer or can I find the seer? He's like, yep, I'm the guy. Come here, spend the night. We'll feed you. He put him at the place of high honor and all this different kinds of stuff. And um, the next day he anointed Saul as the first king over Israel. And with the uh, anointing. And this is what uh, I'm sorry. First in first Samuel, chapter nine, this is what Samuel said to Saul. Don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago, for they have been found. And I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. That language meant, Saul, you're the guy that's going to be named king and your family is going to be the great hope for Israel. Now, Saul's response to this was. I'm from the youngest tribe. That's not how it works. How could this possibly be? But Samuel said, it's God's anointing on you. This is how it's going to be, Saul. This is how it's going to take place. And uh, so then they went back. He made his way back to his family's place. And then Samuel had everybody gather together and he had them gathered by tribes and by families. And then they started casting lots. And I don't exactly know why they did this, because he already said that Saul's going to be the next king. I don't know if it was a show to help other people see that God had said that this is going to happen. Or, quite frankly, when you read through 1 Samuel, the stories are not necessarily always in order. Right? If you read through 1 Samuel, you'd say, I thought he knew David, but then when he slays Goliath, it sounds like he doesn't know him at the end of the story. And so if you read 1 Samuel, things are a little bit out of order. But anyway, Saul, uh, Samuel brings everybody together. He starts casting lots, and the first lot falls to Benjamin, and then the second lot falls to Kish, and then the, the finally uh, the lot falls to Saul, that he's going to be the next king. And everybody accepted that. And do you know why? Because Saul looked the part. Saul looked the part. In 1 Samuel 10, 23 and 24, um, they ran and took him from there. They, he said, hey, Saul's going to be the next king. Where is he? And someone said he's hiding in the baggage. Okay. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. The Bible says that he was head and shoulders above the rest. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people and all the people shouted, long live the king. So Saul's anointing, 
All right. He looked the part. And so Samuel went and he anointed him. It's uh, no mistaken that God said, this is going to be the guy. He's going to be the one. And his anointing was very clear that Saul is going to be the first king. The other thing, and there are a couple of things about Saul, that he was playing the part also, not just looking the part. For example, Saul was a take charge kind of guy. He was a take charge kind of guy. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. There was a time when Saul, and while it ended up being something he was called on, he came in for battle and all his guys were running away because he was supposed to wait for Samuel. And so he took it upon himself to offer a sacrifice when he wasn't the guy that was supposed to. And why? Because he saw his guys leaving. We read that story and think, I kind of probably would have done the same thing. But Samuel said, that's wrong. But what we like about Saul, he looked the part. And part of looking the part is you want to take charge kind of king, don't you? I mean, we want somebody that's going to take charge and say, no, we don't like this. This is how it needs to be. This is our nation. This is our country. And that's exactly who Saul was early in his kingship. It's exactly who he was early in his kingship. The other thing that we like about Saul and that he was looking the part is that he was raising the future king. He was looking forward to who's going to take over when I'm done. That was the big thing about kings at that time. That's a big thing about the king of England today, isn't it? Or we look forward to who's next, who's next. And we'd get fascinated by who's going to be the, have the throne after this person dies and then that person dies. And it was the same at this time. You wanted to keep it in the family line. And so Saul had a son. His name was Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan was really close to David. And as we'll talk about in a second, David was anointed the next king of Israel and not Jonathan. That's not how it's supposed to go. And it really upset Saul once Saul found this out. But Jonathan knew it, and Jonathan was ready to serve David as the next king of Israel. Well, there was a time when David told Jonathan, listen, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan said, no, that's, that's not true. He's like, yeah, he really does. He said, well, let's, we'll give it a test. All right. And he came up with this plan, and basically there was a banquet David was supposed to be at. And Jonathan and David said, you ask your dad, or when your dad says, where's David, you tell him where I'm at, that I'm with my family offering sacrifices, celebrating the banquet there. And if he gets upset, that's when you'll know that he really wants to kill me. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it said, when he asked the question, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse rebellion woman. Didn't blame himself for bringing him into the world, did he? Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. So I know I did a very much a summarizing of Saul's kingship and what all took place. But the fact was that Saul looked the part of the king. And he looked the part of the king and how he took charge. He looked the part of the king and that he was looking out for his kingdom after him in raising up his son to be a king. Jonathan was a mighty warrior. There's a story in the Bible about him and his servant taking out a whole bunch of Philistines that they saw up on a rock. You can read about that. Pretty exciting stuff. Jonathan was there ready to be king. And that's what he was grooming him to be. He was looking the part of a king And sometimes it's easy for us to overlook the fact that he sinned. And a lot of the things that we attribute to him looking the part were God's spirit rushing on him. So he was able to do these things. 
But because of his sin, God's spirit was taken from him and it was placed on another. And that other, of course, name was David. And David, what we learn, come to find out about David, not only did he look the part, but he also he had the right heart. David had the right heart. We know about David's anointing and that uh, Saul had sinned. And so God told Samuel, you're going to go anoint another guy as king. And Samuel says, uh, this is a bad idea. Saul's going to kill me. And God said, well, just take a sacrifice and go there and just tell him that you're going to offer a sacrifice and it'll all be good. And so sure enough, he goes and he sends him to Bethlehem and the house of Jesse. Um, Bethlehem, we, of course, look forward and say, hey, that's where Jesus was born. Exactly. He's from the line of David. And so he goes to Bethlehem and he goes to have this banquet with Jesse and then he goes into town and the people are like, hey, are you here? Uh, are you here under the white flag? Are you here under friendly terms? Because they were all frightened of Saul and what this guy might do. And Samuel said, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm good. Everything's good. And so he goes into um, David's or to Jesse's home and his first son stands up and walks in front of Samuel and Samuel says, definitely, that's the guy. Why? Because the oldest son of Jesse looked the part also like Saul did. But this is what God told Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But where does the Lord look? The Lord looks on the heart. So he said, are these all your sons? He's like, well, we got one more, but he's out tending sheep. And Samuel said, well, bring him in. And so he brought him in. And uh, uh, it says he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David also looked the part, ruddy in appearance. He had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. It's like rubbing it in to all of us who are not for some reason. But he is telling us all this about him. And the Lord's spirit just rushed on David. He's like, this is the guy. It was very clear to his brothers, to his parents, to Samuel that was right there. This is an anointing that David is going to be the next king of Israel. And we have a problem with David, though, don't we? Because the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. But what's one of the first stories that comes to mind when we think about David? We talked about it two weeks ago. Bathsheba. How can a man be after God's own heart and have this awful story about him in him where he has an adulterous affair and he puts the guy to death that's married to him? And, and all these things we think, how can this be a man after God's own heart? Well, it's David's response to sin that allows us to see him. As this guy that's after God's heart, not after God's heart and that he's like perfect like God, but after God's heart and that he's pursuing a relationship with this holy God. And we know in the again, we talked about it two weeks ago with David and Bathsheba, and we know all that happened with uh, with him being uh, called on it. And in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, um, Nathan says, David, you know, this let me tell you a parable, tells him the story. And he's like, Nathan, uh, David, you're the guy you've sinned. And this is David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The response that David had versus the response that Saul had when he sinned are night and day. 
Saul wanted to justify all of his actions. Well, I took all those animals so that we could sacrifice them. I didn't kill the king because I figured that, you know, taking him captive was better. I offered the sacrifice because you were late in getting here, Samuel. He had to justify and make excuses for his sin. But not David. David accepted the fact that he sinned. And what did he do? He repented. He's like, I've sinned. I've done wrong. In 2 Samuel chapter 24... There's a story, another story about David where his pride got the best of him and he decided to count his fighting men. Um, It doesn't seem like that bad of a sin, but it caused a lot of destruction in Israel. He decided he wanted to count his fighting men. He sent Joab. Joab's like, David, you've got more than you could count. Why are we doing this? He's like, go count them. I want to know how many we have. So it took him months and months and months to count all the fighting men that were in Israel. And he came back and gave him the numbers. And at that point, again, David was called on his sin because he had had this pride well up inside of him that he just wasn't trusting God. He had to know. And after he was called on it, um, it said, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David looked the part. But he also had a good heart. And he had this heart of a king that we want in a king. We want somebody who's going to be repentant. And so that's why David sets the standard for the rest of the kings. They were like their father David. They were not like their father David. And all of it through the rest of the Old Testament just compares everybody to David because of his heart. So we have these first two kings. One is Saul. He looked the part absolutely. And the second was David, who had a great heart. But he also, we could say, looked the part somewhat as well. But he was the youngest, right? He was youngest in this small family that was in Bethlehem. Not a place where you would go looking for necessarily a king. Well, then we have the rest of the kings. And most of the kings were off the chart. Sorry, it's the best rhyme I could come up with. The rest of the kings were off the chart. And this is how bad it got. After David, there was this king named Solomon, right, which was his son. And Solomon started out good, but ended not so well. And uh, at the end, um, uh, he was told that the kingdom was going to be torn from him because of his sin. He was actually starting to worship other idols, other gods and things. And so the kingdom was actually torn in two. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam, not related, not brothers, um, were, were the next two kings. But they were kings over a divided kingdom. And so Israel became two different nations. It became the northern tribes, which are referred to in the Bible as Israel. So if you're reading First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it's really easy to get confused because it talks about this king of Israel and this king of Judah. Israel are the northern tribes. There's ten of them. And the two southern ones uh, were Judah and Benjamin. And that's where David was uh, resided in, in Jerusalem eventually. Okay. And so we have the northern southern kingdoms. So of the northern kingdoms, all right, Israel, out of 19 kings... Following Solomon, 18 of them were bad. 18 of them were bad. And when I say bad, I don't mean like they told an occasional lie. I don't mean bad in that they struggled with, well, should I go this way or that way? Or I don't know. 18 kings were causing the people of Israel to worship other gods. That's how bad they were. And that's about as bad as you can get. You know the Ten Commandments and how the first three are all about what? Our relationship with God, right? And so if you're going to take that out of the equation, you might as well throw the rest of it away, which they basically did. Eighteen of them were bad, and one of them was only kind of good. 
Right. That's the kings of these northern kingdoms in Judah on the southern half. You might be thinking, oh, that's the line of David. That's the line that will lead to Jesus. Surely that's a lot better. But actually, out of the 19 that were there, only six of them were good. Six good kings that followed the path of David and followed what God wanted them to do. Twelve of them were bad. And now the last four or five in a row were bad. And one of them started out good, but didn't end things so well. And this is how bad it got, all right? When, they were, when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, God established these different remembrances, right? The Passover, uh, the tent, or the festival of, of weeks, and uh, unleavened bread, and all these different festivals set up, as James was talking about, for us to remember the Lord. Remember what he did for us in bringing us out of Egypt. Horrible, awful time. God rescued his people, Israel, that they were supposed to remember every time. Well, in Judah... Late in Judah's existence before the exile, there was this king named Josiah. He was eight years old when he became king. And about 20 years old, he started restoring the temple and the books of the law were found. And they came out and were read to him. He tore his clothes because he couldn't believe how far away they had gotten from following what God wanted them to do. And then he reestablished all of these festivals. And this is what the Bible says in 2 Kings. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges. Not since David, not since Saul, not since Solomon, since the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. In other words, they had forgotten God. Imagine you've been attending this church for a while, most of you, right? What if we said, you know what, because of time, um, we're going to start doing communion every other week. Because of of time and we're running out of grape juice and so much harder to find right now. And then every other week is like, you know what, we're going to go to once a month because it seems like we want to make it more special if we just do it once a month. And then once a month becomes a burden and we say, you know what, we're having a hard time finding people filling the cups and getting everything cleaned up. So we're going to move it to once a quarter. We say, you know what, Easter is really the most magnificent Sunday of the whole year. We celebrate the resurrection. Let's just do communion on that day. And then one year, everybody's planning for Easter, and what's the one thing they leave out, even on accident? Communion. And before you know it, we have a church not remembering why we get together for the, in the first place, to celebrate Jesus. And that's what happened with the people of Israel. They had gotten so far removed from God delivering them in such a great and mighty way that they started forgetting him and leaving him out of the equation altogether. And this was the result. 2 Kings chapter 17, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away. So the northern kingdoms were taken away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Haber and the river of Gazan and the cities of the Medes. I can't pronounce any of those places. But what happened was the Assyrians came in and they took them into exile. God said, you don't even deserve to be in my promised land anymore. I'm putting my covenant with Abraham on hold because you guys need to understand what you're doing and pay the consequences for these sins. And just when we think maybe Judah, it would be better. They'd get the picture. They'd see what was happening in second Kings 24. King Nebuchadnezzar carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. It got so bad That God said, I'm kicking you out of my promise. I'm kicking you out of the equation. You're worshiping other gods. 
And so he used foreign nations to bring them in or to take them into exile into their locations. And problems could have been avoided had they chosen the best king from the start. Problems could have been avoided if they had chosen the best kings from the start. So what really happened with these kings of Israel? How do we go from judges to kings? Well, this is what happened. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. That wasn't a very nice way to start the conversation. I never find a conversation go old when I enter it and say, You know what? You're old. And things don't go well from there. Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel went and warned the people. This is what's going to happen if you have an earthly king. Here's what he's going to make your sons and your daughters do. It's not going to go well. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 19. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. That's how it all got started. That's how they went from God delivering them by raising up a judge and them turning their back and crying out and God delivering them. It all took place because they didn't trust God. Interestingly enough, Samuel became a judge and a prophet when his predecessor, Eli, his sons were a mess, too. But God took care of that situation. You don't think he could have taken care of the situation with Samuel's sons, but the people, the Israelites, they said, we want to look like everyone else. We want to pass the eye test. We want it to make sense. So we want a king like everybody else. We have to ask the question, why? Why do people want a different king than God in their life? One, they want a king. They want their leader to look the part. Even up to Jesus' death, what were the disciples waiting for? We want a king that's going to come and overthrow the Roman government. Why? Because that's what the part looks like. For a king and a leader of our life. And the Israelites said, we want someone that looks the part. What does that mean? We want someone tall, strong, takes charge, knows that their son's going to be next, is grooming them so that they will be the next king. That's what we want in a king. We want to look like all the other nations. We want to know we're okay running beside his chariots. Whatever sacrifice has to be made, we're willing to do it so that we have a king. You know, folks, I don't think it's... uh, Any different for us today, do you? (laughs) We look for a king, a leader in our own life that looks the part. What do we want a king to look the part of? We want a king that looks strong so that we look strong. We want a king that takes charge so that we can follow someone who's making strong decisions. That's what we want our king to look like who's leading our life. And sometimes we overlook the part about that king having a good heart and what we're really supposed to do. So what does it look like to have God as king over our life and king over our heart? Well, you've heard the acronym KISS, right? Keep it simple, stupid. I know a lot of people change the stupid one to something else because they don't like saying stupid. They don't like their kids saying stupid. I'm just saying stupid a whole bunch because I never get to say stupid on stage, right? But we do a lot of stupid things, so there you go. So here's my little KISS for you, all right? One, keep going. Keep going. I know that life is hard. 
We take a shot to the gut every now and then. We get a kick to the teeth every now and then. We struggle with family, with our marriage relationship, with our occupation, with our community, all these different things that happen in our life. We need to keep going. James 1.12 said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who loved him. We need to remain steadfast. Secondly, we need to imitate. We need to imitate Jesus. Colossians 2, Paul wrote this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We are to imitate Jesus. We are to imitate Jesus. Third, surrender. Galatians 2.29, I love this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Luke 14.33 says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When it comes to making God king of our life, to following Jesus as Lord of lords, we have to surrender our lives to him. We have to surrender our problems to him. We have to surrender our joys to him. All the things that are going great, even the things that are middle of the road, we surrender everything to Jesus. And then finally, we need to serve him. Second Samuel 24, I told you the story about David's pride. But the end of that chapter is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Second Samuel 24, 24. And in that verse, David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Folks, we need to keep going. When it comes to making God of our life, we can turn the corner, turn our head for just a moment. And before you know it, we've forgotten who Jesus is. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. We need to keep going. We need to imitate Jesus. The best way to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is to imitate him, surrender our lives to him and serve him with our whole heart, with our whole life. And as we do that, we'll truly make him king. The people of Israel chose to look like the world instead of the king. Instead of the king that was fighting hardest for their hearts. Instead of the king that's fighting hardest for our hearts. There's so many things that are fighting for your attention. And sometimes we're fighting looking for someone so that we can get their attention, that they'll be our leader. While God all the while is fighting as hard as he can for our hearts, turning our attention toward him, letting us see him in so many miraculous ways. But we have to look. We have to turn our attention toward him. So today we get to be blessed with a young man who at the dinner table the other night, as they were talking family stuff as you do around the dinner table, said, Dad, I'm ready to get baptized. <laughs> And uh, I'm excited about this because I know that Andrea and James raised their kids to know and love Jesus. And I'm excited about this because, not because I don't have to get wet, but because I get to watch a dad. I get to watch a father who's raising his kid up to make Jesus king of his life. Surrender. Help him surrender and watch God do this miraculous work of filling him with the Holy Spirit and uniting him with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. What an amazing thing we get to experience. So I would just ask you real quick to just look at the screen or look behind me at the baptismal as we see a young man truly make God king of his life.